You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Thanks, Aaron. Well, good afternoon. Everyone, welcome to Redemption Hill Church as Aaron prayed. And as I've been saying to you all, we are in the book of Ephesians, which I'm really excited about. Um, This is a treasure trove. And that begins today. You can picture this particular message kind of as a funnel. Um, I want to introduce you to the book of Ephesians, of course, right? Let's think about the book of Ephesians from chapter 1, verse 1 all the way to chapter 6. But by the time I'm done, I'm going to narrow in on some details. The details being what Aaron read, verses 1 and 2. So that's going to be kind of the flow. So I'll begin broad, and then I'm going to narrow my sermon. So I know Aaron just prayed. I just need to pray one more time, ask for God's help, and then let's just dive right in. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that. Much in this world can be bound like a person in prison. People can be bound for various reasons, a a virus, fear. But we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that the word of God is never bound. And so in these next few minutes... By the power of the Spirit, may your word be unleashed. Transform our minds. Romans 12.1. Transform our hearts. And transform our lives. For all good and for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Within the Bible, and in particular the New Testament, Uh, The book of Ephesians just looms large. Uh, Many Christians place the book of Ephesians on their Mount Rushmore of favorite books uh, in the Bible. I, I know I do. I love Ephesians. Here's what a few theologians have said about the book of Ephesians. I mean, just listen to what really smart people have said about this book. People much smarter than me. The letter to the Ephesians is one of the most influential documents in the Christian church. Think about all that has been written throughout church history. And this particular Bible scholar says one of the most influential documents in the Christian church. A lot has been written (laughs) over the decades. Here's what another commentator says. It's It's even more astonishing. The letter to the Ephesians is one of the most significant documents ever written. Not just in the Christian church, but like ever. Another astonishing statement. And I think as we move through the book of Ephesians, you're going to begin to see that these particular Bible scholars and theologians, they're right. The Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians from his prison cell. Most people guess between 60 and 62 AD, a prison cell in Rome. If you remember from our sermon series on the book of Acts, we left Paul in Acts 28, arriving in Rome as a prisoner. 
But it's clear from his various letters, Paul did have some liberties while he was in prison. He wrote letters, as we know about Ephesians, and he had visitors. Paul's interest in the church at Ephesus is really high. Paul would have had, would have had intimate knowledge of the church in Ephesus. We know from Acts 20, he spent at least three years ministering and preaching in the city. When Paul pens this letter years later, he would have been writing with a pastor's heart to a bunch of friends, people he knows personally, because he's had dinner with them. He's, he's seen their kids play. He knows what the church needs to hear because he experienced what they had experienced. I mean, back up for a second. The Powers family has not been in the Des Moines metro as long as Paul was in Ephesus. And thus far, the Powers family has great relationships with many of you. It would seem to me if, if time is kind of the barometer here, Paul would have known them much more just based on the amount of time he spent in Ephesus. So he knows them. He's a friend writing to a bunch of friends. He knows what they've experienced. He knows the city. As a result, two major themes permeate the book. First, we know Paul was aware of the spiritual vibe in Ephesus. The spiritual vibe was very diverse, very diverse. There was a general tolerance of religion in Ephesus, except for Christianity, as we saw with the persecution of Paul, or the almost persecution of Paul in Ephesus from the book of Acts. Roman, Greek, Jewish, and other pagan faith traditions had deep roots in Ephesus. As I pondered the spiritual diversity in this city, I thought to myself, doesn't the spiritual vibe in Ephesus appear to be a lot like the spiritual vibe in America? I mean, just Think about it for a moment. In your neighborhood, or in your apartment complex, or in your workplace, you might have a Christian, a Jew, a person who's a Muslim, a Hindu, an atheist, an agnostic. America is a spiritual melting pot, just like Ephesus. And within the spiritual milieu of Ephesus, there is a lot more going on than a battle between competing ideological thought systems. There's much more going on than that. There's a cosmic battle taking place. Because of diverse, the diverse spirituality in Ephesus, Paul writes to the church wanting them to become aware of a more significant spiritual battle taking place in their midst. Check out this verse from chapter 6. Again, big picture. We're at the, big, we're at the beginning of the funnel. He says this in chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, if we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, then Paul, what do we wrestle against? We wrestle against rule, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
The spiritual battle that Christians face every single day periodically pops up throughout this entire book. We're going to see it over and over again. Sometimes it's kind of like a parenthetical statement that Paul puts into place in the middle of other thought just to remind them of the greater spiritual battle that's actually going on. But then we see here in chapter 6, Paul highlights the issue, kind of like a, a, a neon sign that's blinking at night. So, the spiritual battle that takes place in your life every single day is one theme that will reemerge throughout this sermon series. The other central theme in Ephesians, and perhaps it's the dominant theme, I think it is, it's a Christian's union with Christ. You're going to hear a lot of that kind of language. Union with Christ. Union in Christ. Everything you will hear from me about the book of Ephesians can be, and many times will be traced back to, this idea that we are in Christ. A Christian's union with Christ or in Christ explains the profound theology of the book of Ephesians. So as we go through this letter, we will talk about the spiritual battles taking place. We will talk about a Christian's union with Christ beginning in a few moments, actually, starting today. And there's one more point I want to make about this letter before digging digging into verses 1 and 2. There's not a book in the Bible that does a better job of marrying together theology practice. What you believe with what you do. In the months ahead, we're going to see what a Christian's union with Christ has to do with the doctrines of election, predestination, adoption, the essence of salvation, just to name a few doctrines. But the book of Ephesians is also practical Ephesians calls us to put our faith into practice. There are, there are several prayers in the book of Ephesians that teach us how to pray. Ephesians touches on marriage and parenting in Ephesians 5. If you are in Christ, the book of Ephesians shows us that a Christian is connected to other brothers and sisters who are likewise in Christ. It's talking about unity. The connection is more significant than blood between biological siblings. In other words, your connection in Christ directly affects how you treat the other people who sit in these pews. Very practical. Very practical. What we realize in the book of Ephesians is that your union with Christ touches everything in your life. Generally speaking, Ephesians 1 to 3 lays out the theological foundation of your life. And then as we get into chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, we see how our faith is put into practice. Now, we're going down a little more narrow through the funnel. Now, do not think for a moment that you can skip the introduction to get to the good stuff. 
like a volleyball lob, verses 1 to 2 of Ephesians 1 sets up the spike. Don't be that person who, upon receiving a new book, skips the introduction and goes right to chapter 1. Some of you just like to go to the last chapter to see what you're gonna, where you're headed. Don't be like me where you skip the introduction just to get to chapter 1 so you can kind of get into the book. Recently, though, I began a new book. It's big, it's long, it's theological. But this time, instead of skipping the introduction, I actually read it, and here's what I found out. It was a good lesson. I was blessed and helped by the introduction because I began to see what the expectations are for the rest of the book. Uh, The introduction helped put categories in place in which the book was going to fill out down the road. So the introduction helped me navigate subsequent chapters. The prologue or introduction to the book of Ephesians is really important and helpful. If you're willing to slow down and read, you will see it is just packed with theology. It even even puts in front of us a critical category, the critical category of a Christian's union with Christ right out of the gate. Like a racehorse shooting out of its starting gate at the beginning of the Kentucky Derby versus one and two very quickly sets the trajectory of the entire book of Ephesians. From these two short verses, I've created a a working thesis, which also serves as kind of like my outline for this particular message. Here's the central point for today. God's covenant people are owned by Christ. That's what we're going to see today. Are owned by Christ. Set apart for Christ and faithful to Christ because they have been united to Christ. In two short verses, Paul lays the foundation for the entire letter. And I want to look at what it means for a Christian to be in Christ, which results in being owned, set apart, and faithful to Christ. Again, what we're going to see is that the effects of a person being in Christ actually leads that person back to Christ. I mean, I hope you see what what I'm saying right here. All the consequences of being in Christ leads us back to Christ. So how many times have we tried to make our faith about ourselves? Well, the first two verses in the book of Ephesians brings a helpful and necessary correction to this self-deception. Our faith is about Jesus Christ and him crucified, not about Sean Powers. The opening words of the book of Ephesians says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's the first part of Ephesians 1. Paul's apostleship Rightly comes into view here, right? Very typical of Paul's introduction. I'm an apostle. Commentators and theologians have written countless pages about the apostleship of Paul, and why not? He's one of the most influential writers throughout history. And as we have read in the book of Acts, Paul was saved on the road to Damascus by Jesus. Through Paul's ministry, we certainly see why Paul was considered an apostle, along with the original 11 disciples who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, then after his ascension into heaven. But here's what I find interesting and helpful about how the word apostle was used in the first century. 
In classical Greek, so not Koine Greek, but classical Greek, the term apostolos, apostle, is used primarily to describe ships being sent out for cargo or a military expedition. The idea is that a, that a boat is being sent out. The New Testament picks up on the word apostle to describe a person sent out with a different kind of cargo, a message. But there's another characteristic of a New Testament apostle. An apostle, like Paul, is an authorized messenger. The message he speaks, he speaks with authority. Now, Paul's apostleship is essential, but I'm even more intrigued by the emphasis of the Greek language in verse 1. We, we don't see this in our English language, at least in these translations, but Christ Jesus, what you see right away in verse 1, Christ Jesus is in the Greek genitive case, and all of you are like, Whatever. Greek genitive. What, is, what do case endings for nouns have to do with anything, right? Well, in this situation, it's actually really significant. Here is why the case ending of Christ Jesus in verse 1 is beneficial to know. Christ Jesus in the genitive declares ownership over the apostle Paul, over his apostleship. With the term apostolos, Paul envisions that he is not only authorized as an ambassador sent out by Christ, but Christ wholly owns him. He owns him. Remember, Paul is writing these words about himself. I can reword verse 1 and say with confidence, Paul, an apostle, Owned by Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now, Americans do not like the idea of one person owning another person. On the one hand, the reflex against one person owning another person is because of America's history with slavery, right? I think that is where a lot of minds initially goes to. Slavery is evil. And the sin of slavery continues to haunt America. On the other hand, and this is a very different perspective, many Americans value autonomy. I'm not talking about history. I'm talking about a mentality. Many Americans value independence. Not all, but many. Some tend to go it alone if something needs to get done. Many Americans are quick to say something like, you don't own me. The implication being, what's being communicated is that you are an autonomous, independent individual who can act on your own volition. It's up to you. So what does it mean for Jesus Christ to own Paul? I'll tell you. It means Jesus owns Paul. <laughs> Paul is owned by Christ. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you too are owned by Christ. If you are a Christian and you think you are autonomous, then you are lying to yourself. You are not autonomous. 
Here's what it means to be owned by Christ. Being owned by Christ is good. Christ has extended grace and mercy to everyone he owns. Christ died on a cross to forgive the sins of everyone he owns. You see, you should not get hung up on being owned by God because of the greatness and goodness of King Jesus. Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is the only person who has the right to this kind of ownership. Only Jesus. Why? Because God's dealings are completely just and completely right. The motive of God when tending to his children is love. When it comes to your faith in Christ, don't fight for autonomy and independence, but receive his gracious oversight and care. Feel free to write yourself into verse 1. I'll do it for myself right here. Sean, an owned disciple of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And I hope you wouldn't want it any other way for yourself. By God's gracious and sovereign will, he owns me and he owns you, Christian. And sometimes we need to ask that question to ourselves. Does, do we believe he owns me? And if he does own you, do you fight for that personal autonomy? Or do you surrender to your king? Surrender to him. Perhaps that is the question some of us need to ask kind of on a regular basis. Am I surrendering to my king? So my first point from verse 1 is that to be in Christ means to be owned by Christ. Verse 1 also says that those who are in Christ are saints. I was happy to see earlier that Ryan picked a song where it was expressing how the saints sing. That's you, that's me. So I want to pause to explain the meaning of saints because its significance is rooted in the Old Testament and then brought forward into, it's in the Old Testament, brought forward into the New Testament. If you were a Jew listening to this letter as it was being read out loud, you would have been appalled to hear that a Gentile could have been called a saint. In Greek, uh, the word saint is also translated as holy, holy ones, consecrated. It's one thing to pursue holiness, which the Bible does command. But it's quite another thing to be declared holy by God. Both two, both, both examples are in our Bible. Christian, you are holy and you are to pursue holiness. For a moment, remember that the context in which the word holy would have been understood is the Old Testament. What is considered holy in the Old Testament? Well, God said to be holy, that he's holy, the temple is holy. God called Israel to be holy. Let me try to explain in more detail why it would have been astonishing for a Jew to hear Paul call the Ephesians holy or to call them saints. Here's just one of many biblical examples. In the book of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, we read about the Ark of the Covenant. Not the Ark of the Covenant from the Indiana Jones movie, but the actual Ark of the Covenant. 
The Ark of the Covenant was a really cool-looking golden chest. It was one of, the, one, of the, one of the most instrumental symbols of faith and of God's presence. The contents of the chest included the, the tablets of the Mosaic Law, so the Ten Commandments. A pot of manna as Israel was wandering through the wilderness. God provided food for them through manna. And so they had a pot of manna in this chest, in this tabernacle. And then they had the rod of Aaron as well. So a lot of cool stuff. The ark's origin stemmed from Exodus 25 verse 10. When Moses commanded by God to make an ark of Achaia wood. And the ark was holy. That's what you need to know about the ark of the covenant. It was holy. The idea was as Israel wandered through the desert, so God's presence was with them the entire time. At one point, the Ark of the Covenant was about to fall. Almost fell to the ground until a man named Uzzah kept it from falling and picked it back up. And then Uzzah died. At first blush, it seems like Uzzah was acting responsibly. And we know that's not the whole story. However, this story does highlight what God thinks about his holiness. Do not touch the holy objects of God. God's holiness and anything he deems holy requires utmost reverence. So here's the bottom line. You don't mess with the holiness of God. But now, as we fast forward to the New Testament, we read the Ephesian church is the object of God's holiness. Paul calls them saints. Just as the ark was set apart as the object of God's holy presence, God's people are now set apart as the object of God's holy presence. For Paul to address believers in Ephesus as saints, a phrase of Jewish origin, would have been unthinkable, even offensive to the Jews. I mean, it, was, it would have been, if you want to see what cancel culture is like, just be a Jew in that moment when Paul says, hey, you Ephesians, you are saints, you are holy. They would have canceled Paul in a, in a hot tick in that moment. Get him out of here. He's done. They would have been offended. But Paul bestows upon his pagan-born bearers a privilege formerly reserved for Israel. It is not just that God's people are to be holy, but they have been made holy because they are in Christ. They are set apart by and for God. The people of God, whether it was before the life of Christ or after his ascension, have always been called and set apart from the world and for God. God's people, past and present, are to not give in to the temptation and idolatry of culture. The saints who make up the true church shine bright for Christ. She should not compromise with the culture, but when she stands in stark contrast with the culture, Jesus is on display. The saints of God do not bend the knee to Baal or any other ideology or religion. The saints of God are set apart to bend the knee to Christ and Christ alone. As I was writing this part of my sermon, I was sitting in a coffee shop that I frequent. 
And in the moment, I asked myself the question, do the employees at this cafe that I come to quite often, do they even know that I'm a Christian, that I've been set apart? Right? Or do I talk and act like everyone else who walks in the door? Could they even distinguish anything? If you've been set apart by Christ, then your godly living should be seen by others. So, saints of Redemption Hill Church, be aware that you are not of this world, but that you have been set apart in this world for the purposes of Christ Jesus. It is not a throwaway statement for Paul to tell the church in Ephesus, you are saints. Now, I can say to you right now, to the saints of Redemption Hill Church, you've been set apart by God. In addition to being owned by Christ Jesus and set apart by Christ Jesus, the Ephesians are called to be faithful. Paul calls them faithful. Isn't it a joy to be called faithful by God? You know, after you die, what sweeter words could God say to you than, well done, good, and faithful servant? The saints in Ephesus are called faithful because their faithful efforts are bound to the faithfulness of Christ. As a matter of fact, their faith is bound up in the nature of Christ, who God or who Jesus is. And here's what I mean. And this prepares us for the next several weeks. A person is only faithful to God if he or she is in Christ. There is no other way to be faithful to God. There's no possible way for a person to be faithful to God outside of Christ. What is significant to point out is at the end of verse 1, it says, again, I'll just give you some Greek, in Christo Jesu, in Christ Jesus. In that order, order matters here, in Christ Jesus. I think Paul is trying to convey a bit of theology when he placed Christ before Jesus in verse 1. Christ is directly understood as Messiah or anointed one. Many of you know that. When you read the word Christ in your New Testament, your mind should be thinking about the divinity of Christ. He is God. You should remember that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God. Therefore, it is not insignificant that a person is saved, set apart, and faithful because they are united to God himself. That is profound. You are united to God himself. These three words at the end of verse 1, in Christo Jesu, begin a string of pearls about what it means to be in Christ. Here's a preview of the weeks ahead. And what I'm about to show you, I think, is stunning. If you are in Christ, then you have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing. 
because you are in Christ. In the weeks ahead, we're going to see if you are in Christ, you were chosen by God before the universe was ever created. Christian, before Genesis 1-1, God chose you as a part of the faithful who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you were in love, it says. In love, you were predestined for adoption. You were predestined for adoption out of love. God had chosen and predestined you to be his son or his daughter. If you are in Christ, then you have a glorious inheritance. The inheritance you will receive from God does not compare to your 401k. Some of you are celebrating over that. (laughs) If you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit has sealed you. We're going to see this. Holy Spirit has sealed you for all eternity. God will not give you away. When you are owned, set apart, and given faith to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are God's for all eternity. And all of that is found in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Just there alone. In Christo Jesu, in Christ Jesus. Your union with Christ is the most profound truth of your salvation. A Christian's union with Christ results in us receiving from Christ blessing, joy, security in Christ himself. When I'm out and about, I engage in, you know, kind of pleasantry conversations with strangers, you know, to go to Walmart, Target, Aldi, coffee shops, whatever. I say hi to people. Many of you do the same thing. If you're the extrovert in the room, you're always saying hi to people. Hey, how you doing? Don't know you, but what's going on? Well, of course, people always say in return, well, how are you doing? And oftentimes, I respond with this statement. I'm better than I deserve. I took that, took that statement, stole from someone else, and I began to use it. I'm better than I deserve. And I receive one of three responses, generally speaking. The first response is, okay, I'm going to give you your coffee. Just move on with your day. (laughs) The second response is sometimes, oh, that's nice. It's a nice little statement, you know, and we move on with our day. But the overwhelming response to my statement, I am better than I deserve, is, oh, surely you deserve better. I get that response all the time. Surely you deserve more. Surely you, you deserve more than what you have in life right now. I get that all the time. And here's the truth. We see beginning in Ephesians 1.1, we have been given a string of precious pearls better than anything else in this entire world. 
We are better than we deserve, not only because through faith in Christ we have gone from enemies with God to being friends, but because we have been given Christ. We have been given Jesus. Christ and all of his blessings is the greatest gift we could ever receive. So am I better than I deserve? Absolutely. You bet I am. Are you better than you deserve? You betcha. You deserve to be condemned in your tracks because of your sin. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. But God in his grace and mercy has forgiven you by uniting you to Christ. You might have noticed I haven't touched verse 2. That was all just verse 1. But here's verse 2, along with just a few thoughts about this introduction to the book of Ephesians. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The inclusion of grace and peace to the Ephesians is customary in Paul's introductions, and occasionally he'll say, grace, mercy, and peace. So if you read his epistles, you're going to see that all the time. But the implications are still profound, and one could argue that because Paul says grace and peace all the time, we should really take notice. The grace and peace given to the Ephesian church has actually been given to them by God. Paul's just declaring the truth of the matter. Paul is reminding them of what they have received. Here's how Pastor Brian Chappell explains the grace and peace Christians receive from God. And I quote, He proclaims this grace to the Ephesians, not simply as their hope, but as their peace. Because such grace means that God is not holding their sin against them. God has overcome the obstacles of the human heart and the powers of human evil. Because Paul knows this grace, he knows peace. And he shares both, knowing that when grace is understood as the compassionate and prevailing power of God on behalf of his people, then peace comes. Chapel's thoughts on this matter are spot on, in my opinion. I also want to add that Paul personally addresses the Ephesian church as a brother in Christ. Before he is an apostle, he is their brother in Christ. You know, before I am your pastor, I am your brother in Christ. Let's never confuse that. Ever. And Paul is their brother in Christ. Paul's connection to Christ means he is connected because of Christ to every single Christ follower in Ephesus. Therefore, Paul's greeting to the church in Ephesus is that of genuine love for his friends who are also owned by God, set apart for God, and faithful to God. So in this church, Redemption Hill Church, We should desire to remind one another about the grace and peace of God at work in our lives, in your life. 
Because we have been united through Christ, we should express the same truths to one another. Now, I know what I'm about to say sounds cheesy or old-fashioned, but if you want to come over to my house and say, Sean, grace and peace to you, through God our Father and our Lord Christ Jesus, I'll receive that with joy. I'm not gonna, it's going to take a while to get used to, I'll admit. But I'll receive that with joy. I like that kind of introduction. And I would imagine the Ephesians liked that kind of introduction as well. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In two short verses, in the first two verses in the book of Ephesians, we have seen how God's covenant people are owned by Christ, set apart for Christ, and faithful to Christ because they have been united in Christ. To be honest, we're just looking through the window of the house of this magnificent book. We're just looking through the window right now. That's all we're doing. Next week, we're getting on the sidewalk and we're going to begin to go through the front door. And then the weeks ahead, we're going to check out every room of the house. We're going to see all that God has for us through his word and in particular through the book of Ephesians. We're going to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the glory of God at work through his church. May the grace and peace of God be with you all as we allow God's word to conform our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.